This morning in your Bibles congregation, we would ask you to turn to two different passages. First of all, we'll be reading from Acts 19, verses 1 through 10. And then after that, we'll return to Revelation 2, verse 1 through 7. The first reference you can find on page 1,278. And then the Revelation 2 reference you find on page 1,407. It is our intention to begin a series of sermons through the book of Ephesians. And as an introductory sermon, we want to read and consider what is revealed in Acts 19, which is the historical record of how the church in Ephesus came into existence, but then also Revelation 2, where we have, you might say, an inspired evaluation of the church in Ephesus. Uh, So we read first this morning from Acts 19, uh, verses 1 through 10. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew from the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus both Jews and Greeks. We then turn to Revelation 2, where we read from verse 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place." unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Thus far, our scripture reading for this morning, a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ It's not so much our intention this morning to 
expound the Scripture passages that we have read from Acts 19 and Revelation 2. Uh, This morning we are commencing a series of sermons, hopefully, Lord willing, making our way in due time through the epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to the church that was located in Ephesus. Uh, Now, what we want to do this morning is, so to speak, set the table for the future meals uh, from a steady diet of the Word of God. And so this sermon is an introductory sermon based upon the contents in the epistle to the Ephesians, uh, but also with an understanding of what we have just read about the origin of the church in Ephesus and of the evaluation of the church in Ephesus. I just noticed by way of introduction the powerful statement in Revelation 2. The exalted Jesus Christ, who has all authority and who knows all things, walks in the midst of the church in Ephesus. And by extension and by way of application, that same exalted, risen Jesus Christ walks in this sense that He is present in the church of Covenant Reformed Church in Pella, Iowa. And may we, congregation, never forget that. Now, of course, our triune God is omnipresent and is present everywhere, but especially the risen, exalted Jesus Christ, the head of the church, walks in this sense that Christ is present when we gather ourselves together. And He's present with observation. I know your works. Christ knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us as individual persons. He knows us as families. And He knows us as a congregation. And you'll notice if you've read through, which I assume many of you had, the seven churches of Revelation, Christ has words of compliment, but also words of correction. And that reminds us that every church, every militant church, whether that be a federation or a denomination or whether that be a local church, has both strengths and weaknesses. This was true also of the church in Ephesus. There were those things as a result of God's grace that Christ could say, you are to be commended for this and for that and for this third thing. Uh, They were characterized by a certain doctrinal orthodoxy. They were complimented for their evaluation of teachers and teachings and of their ability to filter that which was true and that which was not true. And Christ properly commends them for that. They were discerning. And yet they were also growing stagnant, spiritually stagnant. And in their spiritual stagnancy, there was the dangerous tendency of growing lax and of spiritually cold. What you might say, a cold, dead orthodoxy. And that is always a danger. That's always a danger for a Christian as an individual. That's always a danger 
for a congregation. And the leadership of a congregation does well to recognize that that is always a potential danger. That perhaps even the doctrinal orthodoxy that a congregation has can foster a sense of spiritual complacency. While we are the ones who are able to evaluate the teachers and discern that which is true and that which is false, that can generate a spiritual complacency whereby the the heart grows cold. This was true of the church in Ephesus. But what about this church in Ephesus? And what about this epistle of the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus? We want to begin our consideration of this epistle with an introduction to Ephesus. That'll be our theme for this morning. Uh, And we want to, first of all, introduce ourselves to the setting, and then secondly, introduce ourselves to the contents, and then thirdly, introduce ourselves to the themes. Uh, And in many ways, we're flying at 10,000 feet over the epistle uh, to the Ephesians, but from that vantage point, we'll introduce ourselves, first of all, to the setting, then secondly, to the contents, and then thirdly, to the themes. So first of all, an introduction to the setting in relationship to the author of the epistle to the Ephesians, and then also in relationship to the recipient. So who is doing the writing, and to whom is that individual writing? So first of all, an introduction in relationship to the author. Now, if you, if you look into uh, the background of the epistle to the Ephesians, and if you do some in-depth reading uh, among higher critics of the Bible and among those who love to debate the origins of various books, you'll find all sorts of different theories and different arguments for who exactly wrote uh, this epistle to the Ephesians. But if you would this morning just turn to that uh, epistle as it begins, you'll notice that what we call the internal evidence is very, very clear. By internal evidence, we mean the simple statement in Ephesians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. So internally, we have the clear revelation of who it is who penned, although indeed there may have been the use of an amanuensis, a a scribe, someone who was skilled in the actual writing that the Apostle Paul may have dictated this epistle to such an individual. But the Apostle Paul is what we call the secondary author. Now, we know this because of our conviction of the inspiration of the Bible. We, we know that when we read Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God in Ephesians 1 verse 1, that that is, among other things, a clear revelation of who it is who wrote this epistle. We know that this is the Apostle Paul, the one who had been directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to go and to advance the kingdom of God by the way of preaching. We know that this is the Apostle Paul who in Acts 19 came to the city of Ephesus and first preached the gospel of the exalted Christ to the Jews, but then uh, upon the hardness of heart preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to both Jews Uh, and also to Greeks. I just want you to note, even as we read in Acts 19, 
that the church in Ephesus came into existence, yes, by the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but the church in Ephesus came into existence as a result of the Word of God. You'll find this theme running all throughout the book of Acts, and it is a most wonderful theme, and it is a most encouraging and instructive theme. It reminds us of this basic point of application, that the church lives by the Word of God, and by the Word of God alone. We say this for our own reminder, but also as an antidote to so much of what you find being publicized within the church growth movement of our day. And it sounds overly simplistic. I simply ask you to evaluate whether or not it is Scripture. Does the church exist by the creativity of its leaders, or does the church exist by the Word of God? We are of the conviction, based upon what you read in Acts 19 and other supportive passages, that the church exists by the Word of God. And and so there, there must be, there has to be within a congregation that is growing, thriving, maturing, a hunger for the Word of God, and also then the consistent provision of the Word of God through expository preaching, uh, and through the study of the Word of God. Just remind ourselves again this morning, the church lives by the Word of God. But behind the secondary author, of course, there is what we call the primary author. Paul did not just come up with the contents of the epistle to the Ephesians of his own. We believe, we are convinced, and we must always be convinced that Scripture is of no private interpretation but that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We believe in what we call the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration, that every single word in the original manuscript was breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And all of the words, all of the the different sections of Scripture, whether it be Genesis or the, the Psalms or whether it be the narratives of the Gospel or whether it be the book of Ephesians, We believe that it ultimately came into existence, yes, as Paul wrote or as Paul dictated to an amanuensis, but as the Holy Spirit moved the Apostle Paul, not just in a general sort of influential way, but as the Holy Spirit gave to the Apostle Paul each and every word that was penned to the Ephesians. And so we take our stance upon the clear testimony of 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You see, these two go together. The emphasis upon the Word of God as being the life source of the church and the conviction that the Word of God is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, if we are convinced that this Word has its ultimate origination not just in the mind of the Apostle Paul, but in the mind of the Holy Spirit, then we will have a desire, indeed an insistence upon the Word of God as having the central place in all of the activities of the congregational life. And so you will find, and history bears this out, you will find that when a church or when a denomination of churches begins to compromise on the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, 
they then begin to move Scripture away from the place of primacy. And then they bring in all sorts of other innovative activities. And so you want to know what a church believes about the doctrine of inspiration, just look at how central the Word of God is to the life of that congregation. And we do this not we bring this up not just simply that we can cast judgment upon other churches, but for our own self-reflection. Do we believe wholeheartedly in the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture? How do you answer that question? Look at what role it has in the life of our congregation. Is it central to most all that we do? Well, if that is something of an introduction to the authorship of Ephesians, what then of the recipient? There is some debate also on this point, and you can read about this in various Bible introduction uh, works. Some are of the mind that this was only written to the church in Ephesus. Others are of the mind that it was what we would call a circular epistle, that it would have, yes, been written to the church in Ephesus, but that they would then would have passed it on to the other uh, local congregations. For our purposes, uh, it makes no real difference. But certainly the intended audience included the church there in Ephesus. Much, much could be said about the city of Ephesus. We don't have the time this morning to say a whole lot about the city of Ephesus. I just want to point out that the recipient, the church in Ephesus, was located in the midst of rampant worldliness. Ephesus, the Roman capital of Asia, was a place that was characterized and filled with sin and wickedness. No, you might say it wasn't Corinth, but there was the temple of Diana. So idolatry was at the center of Ephesus. And associated with that idolatrous worship was also sexual perversion. So two things to always have in the back of our minds when we are reading through Ephesians is that the original context is a church that is living by the Word of God, but living in the midst of a culture that is characterized by spiritual idolatry and sexual perversion. And that's why we say there really is nothing new under the sun, because what is it that we find in our own culture but spiritual idolatry and sexual perversion. And so we are warned about the context in which we live, but we are also encouraged that there is nothing new under the sun. And that is part, and I say part, of what gives the epistle to the Ephesians perpetual validity. It's always relevant. Now, it's always relevant because it is always the Word of God. It's always relevant because it's always given by inspiration, but it's relevant also because the context of Ephesus is very, very similar in many regards to the context of Western culture. And so when we look around at the society in which we are called to live, when we look around uh, upon the damage and the temptation that there is with sexual perversion, we don't have to throw up our hands in despair and say, well, we don't know what to do. We do know what to do. Back to the Word of God, back to the instructive Word of God, back to the informative Word of God. Because yes, certainly a lot of things have changed 
since the Apostle Paul wrote this in approximately 60 A.D., but some things have not changed. The church still lives in the midst of a culture characterized by spiritual idolatry and sexual perversion. Well, if that is something of the introduction to the setting, what then of the introduction to the contents in our second point? And here, Lord willing, in future weeks, we will have much more to say. I just want to point out, and many of you, no doubt, are well familiar with this, I just want to point out something of the structure of the contents of Paul's epistles. Paul's epistles, as he was moved to construct them, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are always characterized by a certain framework with the first part of the epistle, of the body of the epistle, given to what we have there in our outline, the theological indicatives of the origin of the church, and the second part being given to the moral imperatives. Now, just a very quick uh, refresher on our grammar. Uh, An indicative is a truth statement. So, boys and girls, maybe in your English or grammar classes, you learn what an indicative is. If I were to say the, uh, the clouds are out today, that, that's an indicative statement. That, that's a truth statement. Now, when we put theological in front of the indicative, these are truth statements about God. But notice how the Apostle Paul begins. He doesn't begin with man or humanity. He doesn't say to the church in Ephesus, I know your felt needs. I'm going to begin there. I'm going to open up Ephesians 1 after his introduction Just look, if you have your Bible open still to Ephesians, look at how he begins in verse 3 as that begins the the main body. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How instructive to begin with God and truth statements about God. Now you and I were living in a postmodern culture where the culture pretends that truth is completely relative. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. It's absolute foolishness. Truth is truth. What did Jesus Christ say? I am the truth. And what did he say in John 17? As he's praying to his Father, your word is truth. So notice here again the connection between our understanding of the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures and the statement that we begin with truth statements about who God is and what God has done. But this is not just some cold doctrinal statements by the Apostle Paul. For the Apostle Paul and for the true mature Christian, theology always produces doxology. What we mean by that, theology is the study of God, the the knowledge of God, the comprehension of the truth statements about God, who God is and what He has done. The danger is, is that we dabble in theology as sort of some intramural activity. You know, someone might say, well, you know, I, I just love to debate theology with people. Well, the danger is, is that you love theology just for your own sake just to prove that you're a little bit sharper theologian than the next person. For the Apostle Paul and for the mature Christian and the mature Christian congregation, theology, the doctrine of God, must always produce doxology, the praise of God. And that's where the Apostle Paul begins. He certainly has a robust theology, but it all produces him to bless the God 
and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is the difference between a cold, dead orthodoxy and a vibrant, robust, experiential theology. Does our knowledge of God, of who He is, and of what He has done, does it move us with all that is in our spiritual essence to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? If it doesn't, then there's something wrong. Now remember what the risen, exalted Christ said in his evaluation of the church in Ephesus, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Cold spiritual stagnancy, even though they could discern the false teachers and reject the false teaching. Theological indicatives can never just be cold theological indicatives. And so I would call upon yourself as I call upon myself, and this is most applicable to those who engage in theological study. Are you still humbled with a sense of reverent awe in your theology? In your knowledge of God, does it fill you with praise so that you echo the Apostle Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. But the Apostle Paul eventually will move, transition, you might say, from the theological indicatives to the moral imperatives. Now again, a bit of grammar for all of us. Boys and girls, imperatives, yeah, these maybe are what you know, your, your mom and your dad give you when they say, do this. Go make your bed. That's an imperative. Pick up your dirty clothes. That's an imperative. It's a command. Now, in the Apostle Paul's writings, the two sections of the theological indicative and the moral imperative are almost always connected with a word, therefore. The moral imperatives are not just out there in some type of moralistic type of a teaching, but because this is true about God, the theological indicatives, therefore you as the church must do this. So for example, because God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, therefore keep yourselves unspotted from sexual immorality. And, and, and we dare not, of course, to do justice to Scripture, but also to be balanced in our theology, we dare not flip them around. We dare not say, keep yourself from sexual immorality so that you might experience the blessings of God. It's always the theological indicative first. And then the moral imperative. Now, the moral imperative has to be there, but it has to flow out of the theological indicative. And you can, you can go home this afternoon. It would be a wonderful exercise. Go through the epistles of the Apostle Paul, every single one of them, and you'll find this critical transition. In the first part of the epistle, not always exactly the first half, but in the first part of his epistle, he'll lay out the theological indicatives. And then there'll be a now, therefore, 
do this, don't do that. And we need to maintain, because there's always a dangerous imbalance that is lurking around the corner. We need to maintain this biblical balance. But the moral imperatives uh, especially deal with two aspects for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first moral imperative that we'll find flowing throughout Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is the call for unity. The call for unity. God is one. Therefore, the church is one. And therefore, the church must be one. Now here again, what is our theology about the church? We believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Notice how we begin our profession. We believe one church. Well, does our interaction with one another support what we say with our profession? You see, cold, dead orthodoxy says, yes, we believe one church, but boy, we can't stand each other. We believe one church, but we don't want anything to do with anyone else. If that's true of us, and I'm not saying it is, I'm saying it's worthy for us to reflect, if that's true of us, imagine Christ in our midst, and he is in our midst, but imagine he hears, I believe one holy Catholic apostolic church, but I sure can't stand that person. And Christ says, I know your works. There's a danger of losing your first love. Not only the unity of the church, also the purity of the church. One holy Catholic church. And yes, that holiness includes both justification and sanctification. And yes, we understand that even the best of our works are as filthy rags when evaluated in the infinite righteousness of God, but we believe the church is holy, set apart, consecrated. Well, then we need to especially be on guard against sinful perversions, especially of a sexual nature. Because the dangers of hypocrisy are evident here to say, oh yes, we believe one holy church. And then to have idolatry, and really what is sexual perversion but a form of idolatry of self. Again, Christ walks in the midst of the lampstand and says, I know your works. You profess one holy church. Well, what then of the call for sexual purity in our actions, in our thoughts, and in our inclinations? We believe God is holy. We believe the church is holy. These are some of the ground that will be covered by the Apostle Paul in his moral imperatives. But we must hasten on uh, the introduction to the themes. There, there really is a triple theme. I don't want to give the impression that there are three disconnected themes. We'll just identify them 
as kind of a taste test of what's to come. The first theme that is woven all throughout the epistle to the Ephesians is the emphasis on a sovereign God, a sovereign God, that God rules and reigns over absolutely everything. Uh, The epistle to the Ephesians, you notice in verse 4, emphasizes already the sovereignty of God in eternal election, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The sovereignty of God must be the the heartbeat of our understanding of theology. I'll I'll never forget, I I, I didn't understand exactly what he's asking when I was examined to be licensed. No, no, it wasn't my licensure examination. When I was examined for my candidacy exam, uh, the late Reverend Ed Knott, uh, he asked me what is meant by the statement, God is God. I, I stammered some type of answer. He must have been somewhat satisfied with it because he moved on. But wrestle with that statement, God is God. At first, it sounds like just a, a simplistic statement. But, but this is really the sovereignty of God. God is God. He rules over everything with a perfect rule. And you want a practical point to move you to praise and worship? No matter what your circumstances are in life, repeat to yourself, God is God. Therefore, blessed be the God, the one true God of heaven and of earth. There's also, of course, connected with the sovereignty of God, the theme of the great Savior of Jesus Christ. Uh, You might say that The epistle of Ephesians, as all of Paul's writings, is written, we speak figuratively, of course, don't misunderstand this in some literal way, but the epistle of the Ephesians is written with the blood of Christ. I mean it this way, Paul could not write what he wrote in Ephesians except for the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, except for the blood of that was drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Paul could not have written the contents of the Ephesians. And so this theme of the great Savior Jesus Christ must also be a theme uh, that echoes in the very heartbeat of our congregational life. And this also, of course, presents us with the responsibility to call all of us to repent and to believe in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope of salvation. The book of Ephesians is not just simply a a list of practical little tips to make your Mondays and Wednesdays more tolerable to get you to Friday when you can finally breathe a sigh of relief before resuming your Mondays and your Wednesdays. The book of Ephesians lays out the way of salvation, including the work of Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness of sins. The third theme that we'll find woven throughout, anytime you put the first two aspects of the theme, anytime you have an understanding of a sovereign God and of a great Savior, you'll have a growing church. Growing church, first of all, in the sense of spiritual maturity. If we really understand experientially in the depths of our souls, that God is God, and Jesus Christ is the one only mediator, 
Then there will be the increasing spiritual maturity that is the only real antidote towards spiritual stagnancy. Growing ever greater in our understanding of who God is and of what he has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. But also this will, generally speaking, produce growth numerically. Among our own covenantal children. But also we pray and trust to a certain extent, yes, there will be, as in Acts 19, those who hearts are hardened when they hear us talk about a sovereign God and an exclusive mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there, there will be also something that is attractive about an assembly of people who gather themselves together saying, blessed be our God and blessed be our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one holy gathering of people who belong unto this God. Come join with us in the understanding of who Jesus Christ is and of what he has done, and come join with us in the understanding of who God is, but especially then come join with us with the praise and the worship of this one true God, even in the context of a culture that is characterized by spiritual idolatry, and sexual perversion, there will be a holy, unified people praising God both now and forever and ever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God. And we just simply echo the Apostle Paul's statement, and we say also this morning corporately together, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We stand amazed that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And yet, Father, we know the danger of idolatry, and we know the danger of sexual perversion. And so we ask that you would give us humility even in our confidence, that we might be humbled by who we are, but that we might also at the same time be confident in who you are. And Lord, we ask that you would give us a holy anticipation for your word as it is unfolded week by week. May we know that we live by every word that proceeds from your mouth through your word. And we ask then for a blessing to this end for Jesus' sake. Amen.